Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we we thank you for the blood of your Son. A once for all sacrifice that is good for any sinner who would call upon the name of the Lord. King Jesus, we thank you that you're not just our king, you are our high priest. And on the authority of your word, you are interceding even now on behalf of those who belong to you by faith. You yourself are pleading the blood of your cross. You stand in our defense. And because of that reality, we have a sure and steady anchor in the storms of life. And we give you praise, for you alone are worthy of it. And God, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful things in your word this morning. All for the glory of King Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. We are uh, almost through the book of Acts. And I want to commend you for your endurance. We find ourselves in Paul's journey to Rome. And uh, he's been promised that he would get to Rome since chapter 19. And now we're in chapter 27. Uh, Paul had entered the temple in Jerusalem and was falsely accused by some Jews from Asia of taking a Gentile into the inner portions of the temple some chapters ago. And now time and again we've seen Roman governing officials have recognized that Paul is innocent of the charges against him, but they haven't released him because they wanted to sort of satisfy the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem. So sort of a a political problem for the the Roman leaders. And by the end of chapter 26, we've got a king involved, King Agrippa, and he affirms that Paul is innocent, innocent. But then he says that Paul's appeal to Caesar in Rome for a trial means that, that Paul has to be sent to Rome as a prisoner. And so that's, that's where we are in our story today. We'll jump in in chapter 27. Are you ready to hear the word of the Lord? We're going to cover all 44 verses, but not, not in this first section. I'm going to read kind of quickly, if you would listen kind of quickly, so we might be able to get pizza by two. All right? Hear with me the word of the Lord. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And Putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. 
There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. This morning, I want to speak on the subject of being in the same boat, but on a different mission. Being in the same boat, but on a different mission. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that it rains on the just and on the unjust. We're, we're in this world together. We're, we're on a voyage, if, if you will, together. In some sense, we're a bit like Paul. He's on this boat with a bunch of other prisoners, but he's, he's not the same kind of prisoner. He's going to Rome for one reason. They're going to Rome for another reason, but they're on the same boat. So it is with us who journey in this broken world. We're, we're on the same boat, but kind of like Paul, we're, we're on a different mission. We have a mission to testify to our King. Though the world is broken, though it's headed for destruction, uh, we know a King who saves and spares those who belong to Him. And so what I want us to see in these first 12 verses is that when we can see our world sailing toward disaster, it's okay. I would even say it's good to speak a word of warning, even if the majority is going to oppose us. Sometimes it's okay to speak a word of truth to a world that refuses to hear it. You ever feel like the world's grown tone deaf to truth? Like, is anybody paying attention when it comes to, I don't know, men and women in marriage, for example? Is anybody paying attention that God's best for marriage is one man and one woman for life? Is anybody paying attention that it's good for a child to be born into a home that's raised by a a husband and a father? Now certainly, uh, we understand things happen, right? But, But the church should maintain a standard and should argue for God's good design in the world, and we should not be embarrassed to do so. Even if the world is tone deaf, we perceive that the world is headed off a cliff. Right? That it's, it's not wise to spend more money than you make, for example. And it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on in Washington, it doesn't seem like they can figure that out. Right? They just keep kicking the can down the road and expecting that one day it's going to solve itself. This is, this is crazy talk, right? Spiritually, that we are our own masters of our own destiny and somehow we can be our own God and save ourselves and that we, there's, there's, there's no God to whom we're accountable. All this is, is crazy talk, and we perceive that it's crazy talk, and whose job is it to speak a word of warning? It's our job. 
In, in verse 1, Luke rejoins the story, right? He, he uses the pronoun we. When Festus decides to put Paul and some other prisoners on a boat headed for Italy. Now, traveling in a boat with a bunch of prisoners is not how Paul had initially imagined getting to Rome when he wrote the book of Romans about three years prior. He was hoping to come there as a free man and be launched to get out to Spain. But at this point, Paul is happy to get to Rome however he can get to Rome. He's been ministering in the eastern portion of the, rim, of the empire for 20 plus years. And he's ready to go west, get to the capital city, and get the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's interesting that these prisoners are called other prisoners. In Greek, there's two words for other. There's other of a same kind and other of a different kind. This is the word other of a different kind. So Paul's a prisoner and they're prisoners, but they're prisoners of a, of a different kind. What in the world does that mean? I'm not sure. Maybe Luke is telling us that the other prisoners are guilty and Paul is not. Or maybe he's telling us that these prisoners are on their way, as often happened, to be used as entertainment in the Colosseum when they would be in the gladiator games and go up against, you know, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. But Paul is a, a different sort of prisoner. He's in the same boat with the other prisoners, subject to the same winds and waves as everyone else, but he's a different sort of prisoner on a different sort of mission. And all this is happening under the authority of Julius, who was likely a high-ranking auxiliary soldier who also possessed citizenship, which would make sense of, of why he treats Paul kindly, because Paul is a Roman citizen and Julius is a, a high-ranking Roman citizen, and they kind of strike up a friendship. In verse 2, Julius requisitions, because he can as a high-ranking officer, a cargo ship that had initially embarked from Adramitium, which was a city on the west coast of Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, if you can picture Turkey in your mind's eye. And the ship sailed close to the coastline of Asia Minor on its way back home in the Mediterranean Sea. And so far in this text, things seem to be going well. Julius is a high-ranking official who's up to the task. The boat is going to stay close to the shoreline. They'll be okay. And then verse 2, Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, rejoins Paul. Now, if you've been with us all the way through the series in Acts, the name Aristarchus should be familiar. Aristarchus is the guy you want on your side. He's the guy you want on your team. If you want a friend, this is the guy you want to be your friend. You remember back in Acts 19 in Ephesus, he was dragged into the theater in Ephesus because he, was, he had become a Christian and he was with Paul. Later, in, he had accompanied Paul on his return to Jerusalem through Macedonia after a plot was made against Paul's life in Greece. And so Aristarchus joins Paul almost like as a protective detail. And then later, when Paul writes to the the Colossians from prison in Rome, he says in Colossians 4 that both Luke and Aristarchus are with him. You, you got, do you have a friend like that? You got a compadre like that in your life? These, these guys are the sort of friends that God uses to sustain pastors and missionaries for the long haul of ministry. When we think about the gospel getting to the ends of the earth, what do we think about? We think about Paul. We don't think about Aristarchus and Luke, but we ought to. These were the guys who stood in the trenches with Paul so Paul could get the job done. I submit to you, as your lead pastor, pastors need guys like that. 
They need guys who are praying for them, who are with them through thick and through thin. They can bounce ideas off without immediate criticism. They've got guys who are there in the trenches so they can fulfill the work that God has entrusted them to do. Speaking of friends, in verse 3, when the ship makes it to Sidon, about 70 miles north of Caesarea, Julius lets Paul see some Christian friends who in turn take care of him. Now this word care could refer to his medical needs, it could refer to provisions for the next journey or, or all of the above. What Luke is doing is he's showing us the special nature of Christian friendship. A friendship that is lived not in pursuit of just our, ourselves, but it's lived in pursuit of our King's glory and the advance of his mission. And through verse 3, things are going well. Paul's seeing friends, he's joined by friends, and then in verse 4, we read the first sign of trouble. They face contrary winds. So they sailed on the north and east side of Cyprus, and they eventually make it to Myra, which was the southernmost part of Asia, almost due north of Alexandria and Egypt. And it was where ships on their way to Rome from Egypt would often make a stopover, because Egypt was the granary for the Roman Empire. They would be bringing corn and wheat and grain into the empire. And, and once they get there, Julius the centurion puts the passengers on board a grain ship. All right? He just commandeers the ship, and he was allowed to do that, even though it's a private ship, because it was under a government contract. And any ship under government contract could be requisitioned, taken for government use at any time by a governing, governing official. So Julius has the authority to take this boat for official business. And so far, things seem to be going according to plan. The grain and the passengers are headed toward Italy. But in verses 7 and 8, we see the troubles begin to mount. They sailed slowly, which isn't the plan, right? When you get in a boat and you're trying to make time, you're not trying to sail slowly. But they sailed slowly and arrived with difficulty off Snittis, which means they barely made it. That's what arrive with difficulty means. They, it was, they were fortunate to get there. And the winds dramatically cut down their progress, forcing them to slowly coast along until they reached a place called Fair Havens. Which sounds like a great place, but unfortunately, it's a great place in name only because Fair Havens was only good for fair weather. It wasn't a great place for winter. And this is a major concern. They're not in a good harbor. But as verse 9 tells us, much time had passed. And this is troubling. So troubling, in fact, it, he goes on to say, that they were so delayed that even the fast was already over. Now the fast refers to Passover, and Passover fell between late September and mid-October. And when it says even the fast, he most likely is indicating for us that the fast was, was well into October in this year, which means that the time for safe sailing had passed and wouldn't return until mid-March. And Paul is no stranger to ships and shipwrecks, right? He's seen the contrary winds, he knows the late date, and so in verse 9, what does he do? He advises them, which is kind of a weak way of saying it, he urges them to consider the grave dangers of pressing forward. He says, we're going to lose cargo, we're going to lose the ship, and we're going to lose our lives, verse 10. Paul perceives, verse 10, the dangers. Now, it's important because some of you are like, well, hold on, Paul doesn't die, so Paul was wrong. Correct. Paul, Paul was wrong, but we got to keep going. He prays to God for the salvation of the boat, and God intervenes. So 
Paul is not speaking on the basis of divine revelation. God didn't tell him that the ship was going to sink and that everybody was going to die. It's his perception. If anybody in here is a Hokie, fan, a Hokie football fan, you know what this is like. right? You've watched enough Virginia Tech football to perceive what's going to happen in the fourth quarter. You, you know what it's like to perceive the implosion that's coming. The disaster that's on the way. The halfback toss to the short side of the field on third and two and you throw it five yards into the backfield when you need a first down and you start off seven yards behind the line of scrimmage it doesn't make sense but it's what we run and it ends in failure and I often watch the television and I say I perceive this is going to end in failure and then it ends in failure that's, that's what's going on here Paul is not speaking from divine revelation he's speaking from human perception, he perceives that there's a danger. He feels the wind. He's seen the waves. By this time, he's already endured three shipwrecks, we know from 2 Corinthians 11.25. And so he knows what a shipwreck is like. And he speaks a word of warning. And when Paul sees the trouble ahead, what does he do? He warns the leaders of the situation. For now, the centurion sides with the ship's owner and the ship's pilot, but Paul's willingness to speak up now is going to give him credibility when he speaks up again later. This is the way it should be with us as the church. We speak up now even when the world isn't listening because at some point they might encounter their hopelessness and despair and we might then have the opportunity to speak up with credibility later because we've dared to speak up now. Does that make sense? Say something now. We obey the governing authorities, of course, unless they require us to live or worship or speak or act contrary to the will of God. But when the people guiding the boat are jeopardizing the lives and the livelihoods of the people in the boat, and when they're keeping people from knowing God and His salvation, we should say so respectfully. And we do this without fear because we know that God will keep His promise to us to bring us safely to His shore just as He will do for Paul. Paul was perceptive and he spoke up to help everyone in the boat. So when governing officials and bureaucrats enact policies that harm harm families and suppress the advance of the gospel and reward laziness or irresponsibility and stifle innovation or promote agendas... In the name of progress, we too, as the people of God, should stand up and speak a word of warning. Because we're in the same boat. And we ought to warn where this is headed. We don't put our heads in the sand and be like, I know Jesus, there's nothing wrong here. There's a lot that's wrong in our world that we are intelligent enough to say something about. And so we do. And then we wait on the Lord for an opportunity to speak of God's hope into a boat that is in a hopeless situation. For now, verse 12, the majority ignore Paul's warning, don't they? Yeah, nice Paul. We, we see the wind, we see the waves, we know you've been shipwrecked before, but who cares? We're going to make it to Phoenix. We're going to get to a better port for spending the winter, if they can get there. Let's keep reading. Verses 13 through 20. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore, but soon a tempestuous wind, I love that word, tempestuous, means bad, big, 
called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. That's a turning point in the text. If you write in your Bible, if you highlight in your Bible and you're like, what is going on? I'm getting all these details about a boat and wind and waves. I don't know how to follow. When you read words like all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned, underline that. Because when you realize you're hopeless without God's intervention, you, you finally have an opportunity to see that you can have hope. What I, what I want you to see in, in these verses is that when people overestimate themselves and they underestimate the dangers they face, they end up hopeless. That's a true statement, isn't it? When people overestimate what they're capable of and they underestimate the dangers they face, they end up hopeless. And, and that's what's happening to the world. They're overestimating their ability to, to get to God, to save themselves, to work their way to heaven. And they're underestimating the danger that they face because they can't do that. In verse 13, the, the ship's crew and the centurion interrupted favorable winds, excuse me, interpreted favorable winds as a sign that their plan was good. They believe in verse 13 that they had obtained their purpose, that it would be smooth sailing. And so they, they began, they set out. But in verse 14, favorable winds give way to fierce hurricane force winds. In verse 15, the ship is overwhelmed by the storm and the crew has to allow the vessel to just be carried along by the wind. Peterson writes this, Ancient ships could not head into the wind like modern sailing boats can, and so they were carried before the wind some 23 miles southwest. And in verse 16, the ship finally gets a little relief. They're partially shielded by the island of Cauda, and so they take this opportunity to secure the ship's lifeboat that had likely been filling with water. And then in 17, they're trying to brace the hull of the ship with cables before they dropped the gear or some drift anchors for fear of running aground on the Sirtis. Now, what in the world is that? The Sirtis was an extensive zone of sandbars and quicksand that was greatly feared by sailors. And after all these difficulties, we read at the end of verse 17, thus they were driven along. The, the formerly confident crew is finally confronted with their powerlessness. In verse 18, they keep trying to save the ships and themselves, tossing some of the cargo overboard to lighten the ship and give it a better chance of staying aloft and surviving the storm. And then in verse 19, we read, on the third day, whenever you read on the third day, take note. On, on the third day, the crew tosses the ship's tack, which are anchors or other implements that were used to control the vessels. They, they take the last remaining opportunity to control the boat and they throw it into the sea with their own hands. 
You get the picture? You get the picture of desperation and of surrender? On the third day, these once confident sailors finally own their own inability and they throw away their hope of saving the ship or its passengers or themselves. And in verse 20, Luke paints a a picture of darkness for days. They don't see the sun or the stars. They're constantly buffeted by the storm, adrift at sea, subject to the wind and the waves. And then we read in verse 20, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Daryl Bach writes this, the men were left with no gear, no stars, and no hope. And the reality is this, beloved, we live in a world that is like this boat. We live in a world that is hopeless to save itself. We live in a world where people constantly underestimate the eternal danger they face for their sin against a holy God, and they overestimate their ability to navigate the storms that this world brings. And it is right for the people of God, it is right for the church to voice a word of concern and warning to a lost and dying world that one day soon will face King Jesus. And sometimes God is gracious and he allows people to confront their hopelessness before it is too late. Sometimes he allows people to see that they can't row their way safely to shore, but in God they can find safe harbor. And when that happens, we just might get an opportunity to speak a word of hope to the hopeless. Let's keep reading verse 21 through the end of chapter 27. Buckle up. If if you're getting a little sleepy, this is a good time to wake up. You can stand up, stretch. We have one point to go. That's it. But I want you to hang in here because it's a really good point. All right? Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, "'Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved.' Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. 
And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and let them, left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. It's a lot of information. I just want you to get one last point. We're in the same boat, and we're on a different mission. And as those in the same boat but on a different mission, we are the ones who are called to announce the good news of salvation to all who will trust God's word and pursue his promise until we see his promises fulfilled. That's us. That's the role of the church in a broken world that's headed towards uh, a destiny, (laughs) a date with God who will determine eternity. In verse 21, the hopelessness of the situation, we learn, has been compounded by the hunger of the situation. Does anybody here get hangry? And just one of you? Man, my son, whew, when, he was, uh, when he was a little bit smaller, um, like snack time couldn't come fast enough for him. He was, he was a hangry dude all the time. Praise God, he knows how to eat a little bit better now. But, but these are some hangry people. These are some tired people. These are people who are hopeless. They've lost all hope. And they've only had tiny bits of food, if anything at all, due to the despair and the anxiety of the situation. Not to mention the difficulty of eating on a storm-tossed ship. You just don't really feel too hungry. So into this hopelessness and this despair and this hunger, Paul rises to speak. Now, now the storm's still going on, so I don't know what it looks like for Paul to rise to speak. Like, is he hanging on to something? I don't know. But in, in, in the midst of this, he, he stands up and he reminds them that he had warned them about the dangers of, set, of setting sail. Now, this might sound like an I told you so moment, but I don't think that's Paul's motivation here. I, I think rather Paul is establishing his credibility. He's saying, look, if you remember... I told you not to do this. You should have listened to me then and you didn't, so please don't miss the opportunity to listen now. And I want to encourage you with that, church. Sometimes we feel like we're beating our head against the proverbial wall when we're in a culture and a society that is far from God and doesn't care about the dangers. But if we'll speak a word of warning now, at some point, some of the people who live in our neighborhood and live in our workplaces and go to the same schools that we go to, the same colleges and universities we go to, at some point, some of them will run headlong into their hopelessness and they might even be a little bit hangry because they, of the anxiety and the weightiness of this world. And you too will be able to say, you remember what I've been trying to tell you all along? Now it's time to listen. That's what Paul is doing in this moment. In verse 22 through 24, he has an incredibly surprising message, does he not? On a boat that's been 
shipwrecked almost and storm-tossed for days and they haven't been able to see the, the sun or the stars for days. What does he say? Take heart. Be encouraged. Nobody's going to die. Only the ship is going to be lost. But Paul knows this because the God to whom he belongs and the God that he worships sent an angel to tell him so. Now there's a whole other sermon just in that verse. But did you know you can belong to God? By faith in Jesus. God is not just some impersonal force out there somewhere. God wants to know you and belong to you and for you to be His through faith in Jesus. And so Paul belongs to this God through faith in Christ and he worships this God. He, the, the word is to serve like a priest, bringing lost people to God by his testimony, standing between man and God. Paul is doing that by way of his testimony right now. The gods of these pagan sailors and prisoners could not save them, but the King of kings and Lord of lords has a global mission, and he's going to get Paul to Rome. And I can't help but think of Jonah when I read this story. Do you remember the story of Jonah? I'm not going to make you go all the way back to Jonah, but Jonah was also called to be a missionary, right? He was supposed to go to the people of Nineveh, and he was like, the people of Nineveh don't deserve to hear about you, God. What if they repent? What if they get saved? I'm going to go down to a boat and go to Tarshish. I'm going to run away from your mission. I'm going to run away from your presence. And he gets on this boat, and there's pagan sailors on that boat too, and there's a big storm, and the boat is being tossed, and Jonah's down there in the bottom of the ship asleep, and they're like, what in the world? Get up, you sleeper. What's your deal? And he's like, well, the God that I serve, I'm supposed to go to Nineveh, but I'm running from him, and it's my fault. The, the problem with the boat is, is I'm supposed to be a prophet and a missionary of God, and I'm running away from God's mission, so if you'll throw me out of the boat, then the boat's going to be okay. You, you remember this story, right? So the pagan sailors are saved because they throw Jonah, who's running away from God's mission, out of their boat. Is this story not the opposite of that? In this story, pagan sailors are going to be saved because Paul, who is living out God's mission, is in their boat. What's the implication and the application for us as a church today in 2023 in a, a world that is lost and dying in a culture that is godless? What is the implication for us? If we want to be a church that God uses, we need to be about God's mission. Whether God is going to toss us out of the boat to save sinners or whether he's going to save sinners because we are in the boat turns on one question. Is North Roanoke Baptist Church aligned with God's word and his purposes in the world? So help us God. You want to understand churches that are withering up and dying on the vine? They lost the word of God a long time ago. They lost the mission of God. They lost the heart of God. They lost the purposes of God. Their, their presence in the boat is pointless because they stop pointing people to the Savior and honoring the Word of God and following it. So help us, God, no matter what. I don't want us to be that kind of church. I don't want to be a Jonah church. I want to be a Paul church. Churches like Jonah who pursue their own agenda and their own comforts by refusing God's Word and His mission, they can expect to be kicked out of the boat. 
But praise God, churches who are like Paul, anchored in the word, pursuing holiness, and driven to glorify Jesus by sharing the hope of the gospel, God will use churches like that to save many who are in this world traveling right alongside of us if we will honor God no matter what the cost is, even if we have to get there as prisoners. When we recognize our purpose on the world's boat is to be about our Savior's mission, God uses us to speak His sure word of salvation through faith in Jesus. Do you believe this? That God can can use us to tell people who've been battered by this world to take heart because we know a king who has declared, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. The difference between Paul And Aristarchus and Luke and the rest of the boat was that they had the presence of God and the promises of God in the middle of a dark and stormy sea. Do you have God's presence this morning? Do you know and belong to God? Do you have the promise of God that He will bring you safely to God's shore? At the end of verse 24, the angel brings a message of hope, not just for Paul, but for everyone on the boat. He says, Behold, look, see, God has granted you, Paul, all those who sail with you. Don't miss the word granted. That means that God has answered Paul's prayer. Why is the boat saved? Not only because Paul has to get to Rome, but because Paul interceded for everyone on the boat. Paul has been praying for the lives on the boat, and God has granted to Paul all who sail with him. I love this. Do you remember how the story started? Paul gives a word of warning, and the centurion's like, well, the pilot of the boat and the owner of the boat, they say it's safe to go, so we're going to go. But now God says in verse 24, hey, Paul, everybody on the boat is sailing with you. Paul, you're the captain of this ship. The only reason this ship's going to be saved is because you're on it. And I'm getting you to Rome, and you've interceded for the people on your boat. Let me ask you, who's in the boat of your life that you're interceding for? Who are you crying out to God to save? Who's in your neighborhood? Who, are you, who is on your prayer list? Somebody needs to be in your boat. God's put you in the boat to be an agent of his salvation in a lost and dying world. The crew had had ignored Paul's advice, but now they're following it. Those on board are are with Paul. God is going to get Paul to Rome, and and he's going to spare every life on board because of Paul. So in verse 25, Paul again urges them to take heart because God does what he says. Do you believe that God does what he says? Do you believe that to believe God's word is to believe God and to believe God is to believe his word? There's no such thing as believing God without believing his word. Well, I believe in God, but I just don't, I don't take that Jesus stuff too seriously, that, that one-way stuff too seriously. Then you don't believe in God. There's no belief in God, in the one true God, unless you believe God's word. But Paul believes. He believes that God does what he says. And how do we know this? Because he urges them to follow his example by believing God's word. In verse 26, Paul clarifies that God's promise to spare their lives doesn't mean a trouble-free trip. Did y'all hear that? You might want to write that down again. Re-listen to it. God's promise of salvation does not mean a trouble-free trip. Rather, they must run aground on some island. They're going to be saved, but the storm is not over. 
Some of you, and I want to apologize if, if this was your experience, some of you went to a crusade or to a conference or you heard, heard a pastor giving him an invitation and, and he said something like, man, if you come to Jesus, your life's going to be great. If you come to Jesus, your life's going to be amazing and you're not going to have any trouble or any problems in the rest of your life. Baloney. Now, will your life be great? In a sense, yes, because you will belong to God. You'll be able to serve God. You'll be able to know the presence of God. But the storm doesn't just suddenly go away. In fact, I would argue the storm intensifies. Because suddenly, now you know where true north is. And you see a world that's drifting far away from true north. And you're begging people to get back to King Jesus. It gets harder, not easier. So if you, were, if you were sold a bill of goods when you, were preached, when you were presented with the gospel, I'm sorry. But come to King Jesus. He will get you safe to, safely to the other shore. And he will give you hope in the middle of the storm through his presence and his promises. And the promises is, is this, that he will not disappoint. That he will deliver on what he promises, which is your salvation. In verses 27 through 32, the ship is being driven toward land and the sailors fear that the ship's going to run onto the rocks. The situation is so bad that the sailors pray. Verse 29, who do they pray to? They, they pray presumably to their pagan gods for daylight, hoping to hatch a plan to save themselves, but then they don't wait for daylight. In verse 30, they pretend like they're putting out some more anchors, but really they're just trying to get down to the ship's lifeboat so they can hop in and save themselves and let the rest of the boat die. And Paul intercepts it. He appeals to the centurion. The centurion now listens to Paul and he orders the soldiers to cut the ropes of the lifeboat. I love that. Now everybody is literally in the same boat, are they not? Prisoners, sailors, the centurion, Luke, Paul, Aristarchus, they're all in the same boat. God's either going to keep his word or he's not. There's no plan B. And Paul trusts that God will deliver. We know this because he urges everyone to eat. Fourteen days of anxiety and no food takes a toll on the mind and the body, does it not? You ever been there? You, you got a diagnosis. Something came into your life. There was a, there was a challenge in your family. And, and just... You were rushed with the, with the turbulence of anxiety in your life and you could barely eat. Don't miss what Paul is saying. Because God is going to save you, you need to eat. Because God has promised you a hope in a future, you need to eat. You need to be nourished between this day and that day. Paul urges them to eat because they will be saved, because God has secured a future. The same is true for those who know and belong to Jesus. God has given us opportunities to be nourished on our pilgrimage to an eternity that He has secured through the blood of His Son. Those who are truly saved, even though we sail through stormy waters, we will see the value of feasting on Jesus and His Word to be strengthened on our way to the shore of God's salvation where we will behold our Savior's face forevermore. And in this case, Paul sets the example, doesn't he? He doesn't just tell them to eat, he eats. He takes some bread, he offers thanks to God. Sounds a lot like the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper. There's no wine there. There's no crushed fruit of the vine there. And he's not hanging out with believers yet. He's hanging out with unbelievers. And yet, they need to eat. And so he takes some nourishment because God's promise is both of shipwreck and salvation. 
And if God is right, Paul's going to need some calories to make it to the shore. And did you know you need calories to make it to the shore too? If you belong to Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, you don't just sit in your house and wait for Jesus to return or to die. There's a whole program of feeding that he's put in place called his local church. Why are we here? Why do we digest the Bible? Why do we take in the Word of God together? Why do we spend time together in 3D groups? Because this is God's way of nourishing us so that we would endure and make it safely to the other shore. And when they saw, see Paul take this step of faith, they eat as well, all 276 of them. And after they've eaten a right good meal, they toss the rest of the wheat overboard to lighten the ship and give it the greatest chance to get as close to shore as they can. And then in verses 39 through 44, God does what he always does. He keeps his word. At first, after the sun came up, they didn't recognize the coastline, but as they kept looking, they saw a beach and decided to try and reach the shore. And at first, they made some progress. But then, as God had said would happen, they struck a reef, the ship was struck, was stuck, and they were battered by the waves, and the soldiers feared losing their lives if any prisoners escaped, so they want to execute the prisoners. But God had promised that everyone would be saved, and so Julius, who has regard for Paul, says, you're not killing any prisoners, and so God keeps his word. Eventually, those who could swim and those who had to just hang on to floating parts of the ship make it ashore, just like God promised. And that brings us to the end of chapter 27, and some of you are saying hallelujah. So in closing, what are the lessons? What are the lessons for the Christian? Marita says this, Though you may not understand everything that's happening when you consider the twists and turns of your life, and I'm, I'm looking out across the congregation, I, I see people who have encountered some twists and turns that you wouldn't have ordered for yourself. It's been some hard waves. Listen to what Marita says. Though you may not understand, you can know that God is working for your good and for His glory. You can trust Him. No, we can't magically get out of the boat, but we can speak a word of warning when it's appropriate and a word of hope to the hopeless along the way as we nourish ourselves until God brings us safely ashore. And what is the lesson for those who don't yet know Jesus? As our worship team begins to come forward. Here's the lesson. Life in this broken world will have its share of storms. It's unavoidable. It will have its shipwrecks. But you can know if you will trust in Jesus that God will bring you safely to eternity and supply what you need for the journey every step of the way. And I know in a, in a congregation this big, in a crowd this size, there's at least one here today that walked through those double doors feeling like the weight of the world and maybe even the certainty of death was on your shoulders. Perhaps you haven't felt like life was worth living or, or food was worth eating. And if that's you, I want to be Paul for a moment. I want to be in your boat for just a minute if that's where you are this morning. An angel didn't appear to me and tell me that it was going to be okay, but I got something better. God wrote a book. It's entirely reliable. And in this book, God says, you're going to have a storm. 
you're going to have storms because you're a sinner. And when you sinned, it broke the world and broke you on the inside and broke your fellowship with God. And it's stormy and it's tough. It hurts relationships. Hurts every aspect of our hopes and dreams and aspirations. But God said, what Adam messed up when he sinned, I'm going to fix by sending my son. And he did. He sent Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect life, earning, meriting the favor and blessing of God. And then, though he had earned and deserved the favor of God, he went to the cross and substituted himself, saying, they deserve death for their sin, but I'll take their death and I'll give them my life so that they can enjoy the blessing of God as well. And on the third day, God rose from the dead. And what happened on the third day in this text? They saw they were hopeless. They saw they were hopeless. And there's some in this room this morning, maybe you've finally seen you're hopeless to save yourself. I've got good news. On the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, proving that he's God, proving that God keeps his word, and proving that though you live in a storm-tossed world and a a storm-tossed life, that if you will trust in Jesus, he will save you. He will forgive your sins and He will bring you safely to His shore. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.